Welcome to the Bellew Podcast. Please note the information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. Welcome to the podcast. Now, regular listeners will know we often check in with some of Australia's leading fund managers to hear what they're thinking, investment ideas that they have with some passion and conviction and also some issues that are concerning them. And today is one of those days. I'm delighted to to welcome Chris Stott, Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager at 1851 Capital, a specialist Australian small companies investment manager. So welcome to the Bailey Podcast, Chris. Thanks, Nick. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about the rise of online retailing during the pandemic. Perhaps we'll ponder how much of that trend that we've seen is temporary and how much is permanent. Um, Before we get into that, uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about your firm for those who are not familiar, 1851 Capital. Thanks, Nick. 1851 Capital uh, is a small boutique funds management outfit focused on investing in growth companies in the small cap space. Uh, we formed, it's a newly formed business um, with my colleague Martin Hickson. Uh, we commenced the operations of the business uh, at the start of 2020. Um, so we set out with a, we've got a, a wholesale unit trust structure um, targeting high net worths and family offices and uh, we've had really strong support. We uh, started out with $80 million of funds under management back on the 1st of February of 2020, which is an interesting time to, to start a fund, but we've, uh, we're pleased to say we've, we've come through it in good shape. So today we sit at north of 100 million of funds under management, uh, well on the way to our stated soft close of 400 million of funds under management. So we've been really humbled and pleased with the level of the support that we've received for the fund to date. So we'll get uh, performance numbers have been really strong, and I'm 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 keen to give you an opportunity to to talk about those a little bit later in the podcast. But uh, Stoddy, l- launch on the first of February, late March. Were you thinking about the merits of starting your own firm? How's your timing? I think we we take the cake, Nick, for the worst timed fund launch in history. Um, it was certainly a uh, volatile period to say the least. Uh, living through the GFC. At my previous uh, role at Wilson Asset Management, there, um, this was totally different, a lot faster, and a lot more ferocious. And um, so, certainly, after having a terrific year out in the mar- year off in terms of year out in the markets, and coming back into that was certainly a baptism by fire. But um, yeah, pleased to say that uh, you know we've performed quite strongly, performing by seven percent over seven months, um, ranked top quartile in the Morningstar survey over one, three, and six months. So. Uh, pleased to say that we've you know, come through it with strong performance um, and really strong inflows. So, uh, yeah, pleased with how we sit today. Excellent. Okay, so let's get on to the topic at hand. So online retailing and um, really it's a, it's a fascinating area. And as you say, uh, the market, the economy has had such a high velocity to it over the last six months on the way down, but seemingly in some areas on the way back up as well. And um, so we want to touch on the Australian consumer and more specifically the online sales channel, and as well as some top stock picks as well. But um, Stoddy, I just wanted to set the scene here a little bit. So um, retail sales, we've seen some of the most extraordinary numbers um, in this sector uh, that we've ever seen during this COVID period, whether you're as, as big as Woolworths or a, a small retailer. Um, you know, the month of July saw retail sales grow in Australia by 12.8%. So the long-term average here is about 3%. So, you know, many multiples of what we would normally expect. 
obviously people have been going to supermarkets a lot more. Supermarket sales in July were up 16%, but household goods and associated products were up 30%. Um, and of course, you know, we're interested today in talking about particularly the online component of some of those sales. So just some, again, a few numbers to set the scene. So Woolworths online sales up 85% in July and early August. In consumer electronics, JB Hi-Fi online sales up 134% in uh, the June quarter. Um, Adair's Home Furnishings online sales up over 100%. Specialist online retailer Temple and Webster uh, reported sales growth of 161% in July and August. So in most of these cases, share prices are rising uh, to very lofty levels, just like the sales growth is. Um, so extraordinary numbers all around. Um, Stoddy, my first question to you is, as an investor looking at this space, I guess, you know, we're reflecting on timing a second ago. In March, the world was concerned about a global depression. Um, and yet from that, we've seen this huge change in consumer behaviour. So as an investor and in your work, at, at what point over the last few months did you see this trend emerging and this change in consumer behaviour emerging? April, May was when we really started to notice the acceleration of online retail when some of the companies that were uh, listed on the ASX started to come out with, you know, really strong trading updates. And you mentioned a few there, Kogan and Temple and Webster in particular have been two of the biggest winners through this uh, COVID-19 or pandemic period. You know, Kogan's share price fell to $4 a share back in late March to trade over $23. Only a few weeks ago, Temple and Webster hit a dollar dollar sixty at the lows. You could have could have sold it for ten dollars a few weeks ago. So enormous acceleration in terms of uh, sales growth for a lot of these companies, and we would argue that it's accelerated the shift from bricks and mortar to online retail. Um, we've probably seen in the space of six months a three to four year. Uh, period of consolidation in terms of that shift to online right across a lot of the, the listed retailers, uh, in particular the omni-channel ones where companies like Shaver Shop uh, have seen primarily a bricks-and-mortar retailer have now almost got 25% of their sales online. And the beauty of these, this, is uh, Nick, is that uh, generally online sales for an omni-channel retailer um, are generally more profitable, higher basket sizes, um, you know, higher margins, less levels of discounting. Um, so, so it's really been a phenomenal period in terms of that uh, accelerated shift to online retail. And so when you're sifting through this trend, it's emerging and you're looking for exposures um, and their positive attributes. What are the sorts of attributes in uh, some of these um, retailers are you looking for as, as an investor? Yes. So, uh, firstly, a few things. We, we obviously, the first thing we do is go straight on their websites and in a lot of cases test drive them from, for them uh, for what they sell. So, in the instance of Shaver Shop, I was on there in April of this year, uh, needed some replacement blades for my shaver, so I put, a, put an order in, ordered online. It was a terrific experience. The goods arrived two days later um, and it was, it was really seamless in terms of that whole uh, experience. So obviously, functionality of a website is obviously a given. Um, but secondly, is the is delivery. So uh, a lot of the online retailers these days are now offering free delivery over a certain basket size. Um, the pricing as well is critical. So whether they are pricing a good uh, in a store versus online at the same price is also a critical part of the uh, piece as well. 
Um, and also just things like, you know, search engine optimization. So if you jump onto Google and, and search for, say, type in office chairs, um, you, it's really critical for a lot of these retailers that they appear at the top of the list in terms of the, the search engine optimization in particular uh, with Google. So that'd be some of the ingredients as well as um, we look at the pure play online retailer, so Kogan and Temple and Webster, compared to the omnichannel uh, retailers as well. And in particular with those omnichannel retailers, the ones that have been successful, and you mentioned a few earlier there, like JB Hi-Fi, have been the ones that have invested ahead of the curve. Um, that 10 or 15 years ago were investing heavily in their online presence. And that's really, uh, for the ones that have done that, have certainly come out looking pretty, uh, in a much stronger position uh, post the COVID-19 lockdowns. Yeah. Okay. So I guess uh, the key question uh, that, that sort of I've been thinking about ahead of our discussion is, is really trying to think about what um, so, so you mentioned, um, you know, there's been a three to four year acceleration in the uptake of um, sort of online retailing or the penetration of online retailing, if you like, and, 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 and e-commerce in general. Um, thinking about what is a, a temporary versus a, a permanent shift in, in consumer sale, uh, in consumer behaviour and particularly online sales. So um, I'm, I'm just going to make a, a case for and a case against and I'd be interested to see where you or which you um, put greater weight on at the moment. I guess if we think about the case for this being a, a permanent change in consumer behaviour, you can look at various stats um, that Australia is well behind other countries in terms of online penetration and, th- and this, this is catch up. You could also mount an argument about demographic change, that the younger generation is becoming uh, more important to the overall sales picture. Um, you could say that the enablers of, of e-commerce, 5G and NBN are relatively new and only going to improve. And then we might talk about a decentralised workforce or certainly a more decentralised workforce with people going to be spending more time at home working. So that's sort of the case for the case against fiscal stimulus unprecedented um, and will run out at some stage. The early access to super is a one-off sugar hit and then ultimately um, unemployment will, you know, unfortunately probably settle at, at rates higher uh, post-COVID than it was pre-COVID. So in terms of looking through this consumer discretionary sector, um, Chris, ha- how do you weigh up those sort of cases for and against? Yes, so we are quite positive on the consumer discretionary sector. I think the consensus uh, call at the moment, and which you sort of intimated on, Nick, is that retailers have had their time in the sun. They've done really well over the last six months. It's all been stimulus-driven by the superannuation drawdowns and JobKeeper in particular, and it's when that all stops, the music the music will stop for all these uh, for all these retail businesses. We, we take the opposite view to that. Um, now, clearly, we're, we're of the belief that over the next six to nine months, uh, the like-for-like sales figures that you see from a lot of re- listed retailers will be lower than what they have been. There's no doubt about that. In fact, some of the numbers we've seen over this last reporting season have been the strongest in well over 20 years. Mm. Um, so in that, that, that factors in the Kevin Rudd checks, the $900 checks that went out in 2009, which saw a huge spike in retail sales through that period. This has been stronger than that. So you're going to see a slowdown in like-for-like sales for a lot of these companies. Um, if you take a step back and have a look, you talk about unemployment. Um, yeah, unemployment looks as though it could peak at around 7 or 8% for this cycle when we're looking at back in mid-March, looking at those depression-type scenarios that you were talking about before. 
it, we were thinking it could be closer to 15 to 20%, which would be obviously a, uh, a very long road out of this recession that we're in in Australia at the moment. So um, we think that, um, you know, even though that the stimulus payments will, uh, you know, will be eventually be gone altogether, that the consumer that's still got a job have generally, in line with what companies have done, they cut their cost base. So the first thing you do in a household is, right, we're in recession, what are the, what, where's the excess, what can we cut? in terms of um, costs um, for individual households. So uh, there's that, as well as the, the households that have still got a job, um, which is you know, more than 90% of the population, actually feel pretty good about things at the moment. So um, they, they've cut their discretion, you know, they've cut their expenditure around the house, um, not going on potentially on as many um, you know, holidays that they would have gone on in the past, so saving a bit of money over there. Um, not going out as much, so saving car, uh, money on petrol and those type of things. Uh, and so there's a little bit more discretionary spend there, which has been reallocated, we believe, particularly the homeware retailers over the last three to six months. So we expect that the discretionary sector, on the back of you know, record low interest rates, with no sign of interest rates going up for many years, in our opinion, um, that the, uh, the backdrop's been set for the next over the medium term with lower interest rates unemployment will continue to improve, in our opinion, on a one- to three-year view. Uh, and so certainly that, that provides a, a strong backdrop uh, for the discretionary sector. One final point I'd mention here is that we got the negative GDP, negative GDP print of negative 7% uh, a few weeks ago. The thing that I found most interesting in that data set was the updated savings rate data, which said that when the savings rate in Australia now sits at 20%. That's a level we haven't seen for many, many decades. So consumers, as you'd expect, feeling naturally nervous about the economy and their out the outlook for themselves from a financial standpoint, have been aggressively saving as well as paying down debts um, through this period. So whether you see that savings rate revert back to its normal level of around 2 to 5% longer term, we think that will occur. And so certainly a lot of that money flows into discretionary uh, retail sector over time. So throw all those factors into the mix. We think the, the backdrop for those for the retail sector looks fairly attractive. Yeah, okay. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of stocks, and, and we'll get to, to some specific stocks in a, in a second, but I guess now we're starting to think about valuations, whereas you know previously, as you mentioned, some of those particularly online-only retailers, Kogan um, and Temple and Webster, were, were trading at you know significantly discounted levels, and now they've gone to significant significantly fuller uh, valuations and, you know, PE multiples at, at sort of record highs. H- how do you think about opportunity from a macroeconomic perspective and, and marry that up with, you know, elevated stock valuations? Yes, it's interesting in terms of valuations at the moment. Um, over the last six months, would argue that people haven't been looking at valuations at all, yeah. um, in as, as anywhere near as much as you'd usually do through a cycle. And as you just, I agree, we're now getting to that point, I think, where people are actually sitting back and taking stock and saying, well, okay, we've actually we've got through the, hopefully the worst of this pandemic. We can now model out earnings for all these companies for the next one to three years with a higher level of confidence than what we had back in March, uh, maybe a higher, higher level of certainty than what we had back then as well. So um, I think that, um, you know, that certainly uh, does help um, as we go forward from here. Yeah. 
And we've been talking about consumer behaviour. What about corporate behaviour, um, Stoddy? Do you reckon, I mean, you know, um, we've both been in the, the small cap market in Australia for sort of 15 or, or, or 20 years or so. And if you're analysing a retailer historically, it's always been about the store rollout and a, and a long uh, sort of runway of store rollout. Do you think we're going to start to see, you know, retailers shrink their store base and talk more and more about online and, and will worry less about that store network aspect of, of small and mid-cap retailers? Yes, absolutely. So we're already starting to see it with select businesses. So City Chic uh, is one. They do plus-size women, uh, women's clothes. They've already called out the closure of uh, around 10 of their stores. Uh, they've got around 100 stores around Australia at the moment. So they, they've called out they'll close around 10 of those stores and they've got around two-thirds of their sales online. So they've been one, again, ahead of the pack in terms of you know transitioning from bricks and mortar sales to online. I think in the bulk of cases for those omni channel retailers, the ones that have got the bricks and mortar and the online exposure, uh, they'll continue to hold a store network, but I just don't think you're going to see the same same level of growth in their store network uh, for a lot of these retailers that you've seen for the last 20 years over the next decade. Yeah. Um, I think you'll, you'll find that a uh, common theme for the next five years will be rent reductions for a lot of retailers where leases are, are, are rolling over. Um, the, the power is clearly with the retailer at the moment in terms of renegotiations on rent, which is obviously one of their key, in addition to labour, it's their key cost line. So we believe that the store networks for a lot of these listed retailers um, will not see significant levels of growth. In fact, you probably see a few other companies like City Chic, which might just selectively reduce their store network by circa 5 to 10% over the next decade, dependent, I think, and the key point here to make is that dependent on their online capability. So um, in terms of, you know, the quantity of sales they're seeing online versus that bricks and mortar um, exposure. But clearly there will always be a place for bricks and mortar retail uh, right around the world. Yeah. I believe longer term. You know, there's, I don't know, for myself, if you want to, if you're purchasing a new couch, uh, one of the first things you want to do is sit on the couch. Is it comfortable? I mean, it's, you can't do that online. So certainly there is an element of the population that are happy to purchase an item like that without, you know, touching it or seeing it or, or even sitting on it in, this, in, the, in the case of the couch. But um, there will always be a, a place for, for bricks and mortar retailers long term. Okay, so let's get into some um, stocks, which is the main reason uh, why we're here to talk about um, some investment ideas where uh, you might have some high conviction. So um, just uh, frame it up for us. Um, Chris, what do you uh, look for in stocks? What's your, your process and, and framework? Sure. So we're, you know, we're, as we said earlier, we're, we're focusing on you know, growth companies. Uh, in our, as a part of our investment process, we're fundamental bottom-up stock pickers uh, in terms of looking for those uh, growth companies. So we, we typically filter those companies based on their cash flow, returns on capital, gearing, management, industry position, and the quality of their earnings over the longer term. Um, you know, we're obviously assessing obviously not only those quantitative factors but qualitative factors uh, in terms of assessing those companies. At, at the end of the day, for us, the most successful investments that we've had over the longer term in our 15-year experience uh, in the industry have been companies that we have got really strong management teams and everybody says, oh, you need, you need that good management um, you know, when investing in a company. But, yeah, sure, that's fine. What does that look like? Well, things that we actually look for, um, firstly, their experience, where have they been um, in terms of uh, previous roles within the industry or, or, or moving around different industries. 
um, is obviously uh, critical in terms of that assessment, but also assessing um, you know remuneration structures, so short and long-term incentives, which you'll find in a company's annual report. Obviously, really, really critical in in terms of driving the right behaviour for a management team and making sure that they're aligned with the objectives set from the board and aligned with shareholders. So, um, but typically, you know, in our investment process, we're we're t- we're totally benchmark unaware. So, with no sector limits or uh, concentration bets uh, around that. But um, so that's typically how we we go about in that in that small cap space. And the final point I'd make, Nick, is that. Another key factor that we've found um, in terms of our most successful investments over time have been companies that have got net cash on the balance sheet, so no debt. Um, that really provides flexibility for a company in the form of whether they, they, they can accelerate capital management, they can accelerate growth via uh, merger and acquisition opportunities, um, and it's also a, a really healthy sign um, in terms of uh, you know, having strong levels of operating cash flow over the longer term. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Very comprehensive. So uh, we'll get into a couple of your key pick uh, stocks in a second, but I guess since they're topical um, and the share prices have done so well, largely on the back of the themes that we've been talking about, uh, Kogan and and Templer Webster, what are your views on those two specialist online retailers um, at the moment? Both really high quality businesses uh, have done incredibly well, as we mentioned earlier, through this lockdown period, and we expect that they will continue to experience high levels of growth for the remainder of this calendar year. Um, in terms of, we talked about valuations before, we think that the valuations in the short term um, have become a little bit elevated for those, for those particular two names uh, that we mentioned. But certainly, again, really have both got you know, really strong management teams um, and have delivered incredibly well, um, particularly over this last six to 12 month period. And one thing, one note of caution uh, that we've, you know, we've seen more recently is both Kogan and Temple and Webster have seen you know, senior management sell shares in, in, in both of those companies uh, in more recent weeks, um, which can and doesn't have to be a red flag, but we typically find is a bit of a red flag for the future prospects for the company. So it's not to say they won't go well from here, but we just think the valuations are a little bit elevated for now for those two stocks. Yeah, okay. All right, so uh, you've nominated ahead of this chat um, a handful of sort of key stock uh, picks, and the first one we did briefly touch on it before, um, but one of the those opportunities is Shaver Shop, so code SSG. It's a $100 million market cap, um, and as the name suggests, uh, it is a specialist retailer in the personal grooming products um, sector, um, 123-odd stores across Australia and, and New Zealand and um, some really very, very strong numbers um, that have been reported most recently for its uh, result in, in August. So you know, 40% like-for-like sales growth uh, in the fourth quarter and 100-odd percent in on terms of online sales growth, similar to some of the other numbers we were talking about before of other retailers. Um, but, uh, study it, it, it remains, I, I guess, from a valuation perspective compared to some others, um, largely undiscovered at this point, uh, Shaver Shop. Yes, we, we totally agree, uh, Nick. So, Shaver Shop uh, was one of our founding investments at 1851 back in February of this year, where we, we took a position in the company uh, back at that point. And we still think it's as cheap as it was back then, if not perhaps with a much better outlook. So, Market cap of 100 million um, on a PE of only 10 times, growing at north of 10%. Um, you mentioned some of those growth numbers that they've been experiencing. Their online sales, as I mentioned earlier, are now around 25% of 
total group sales, growing at well above 100%. And the, the, the beauty about the Shaver Shop is a few things. Firstly, they're seeing the benefits of their refurbs of the store network. So they're, they're, the, new, the new format stores are certainly seeing a huge uplift, uh, 15% like-for-like sales in their, in their store network in that last year they've just reported on. Um, so that's really helping to drive sales. But also the type of product that it sells um, you know, is, is certainly fits the mould for us in terms of the attractiveness of being able to purchase online and the repeat purchases, whether it be you know, replacement um, you know, shaver blades that we mentioned earlier or toothbrushes and the like. So uh, they're the type of products that you know, you, and once you buy it once, you're happy to go back and repeat purchase. So really, again, really strong management team. A strong, really strong balance sheet that you know generated a lot of you know, really strong cash flow result that we saw only a few weeks ago, uh, back in August. So we think that that one screams value for us at, at a multiple, well below well, half the market's multiple. So the market's trading at about 20 times PE, uh, and it sits at half of that. So with much stronger growth prospects. So that's one that stands out as good value for us. And then when we talk about value plays that are deep discount to the market, I guess we often talk about you know potential catalysts for uh, to draw attention to the business and to see um, some share price appreciation. So, you know, how do you think about this stock from a catalyst perspective? Sure. So um, we, we think that the Shaver Shop over time, uh, in terms of potential catalysts that it could have over the next six to 12 months, we think that the it could surprise on the upside again from an earnings perspective. Um, you know, we study Google Trends and all the online visitation data to their website and it's still showing to this day uh, in mid-September that all the trends are moving the right way. So we still think that uh, those things are holding together. And the uh, last update we got from the company at their result in late August suggested that that had a very strong start to this financial year. So we think that there's certainly a, a high propensity there to, for them to surprise uh, on the upside. The other thing would be in terms of um, you know, store rollouts and any updates around potential acceleration or not. Uh, of store rollouts and also further investment in their online capability, in particular the, from a fulfilment standpoint. So right now um, they fulfil online out of all their store physical stores. So whether they can centralise that over time now they've achieved um, you know, significant scale from an online standpoint, um, there's potential there for costs to be saved uh, from, from on the logistics side of things down the track, more medium term. So that would be some of the things that we'd be looking for that could see Shaver Shop re-rate for the, from here. Yeah. Okay. So shaver shop at the smaller end, hundred million, but undiscovered, as you said, and uh, and printing certainly some very very strong numbers from their online channel um, at the moment. Um, one of your other um, stocks uh, on the list uh, study was ARB Group, um, which is uh, still in the consumer space, not necessarily uh, playing the online theme, but but certainly. Um, uh, as we're about to discuss, a beneficiary of the the COVID environment and what our world looks like over the next uh, over the next you know one to two years, depending on how things play out. But this business, ARB Group, be familiar to many people. Two point two billion market cap, four four wheel drive accessories, so bull bars and canopies, roof racks, all those sorts of things. Um, it's it's been a great small cap uh, company in. Um, in Australia um, over many years. It's got a, a wonderful track record um, and, you know, both qualitatively um, and quantitatively um, in terms of profit growth, operating margins, return on capital, all of those, all of those sorts of things. Um, 
And it's interesting to note that automotive is one of the top five categories that people um, have said that they've spent their um, stimulus uh, funds on. So you mentioned debt reduction previously is is perhaps the number one thing that um, consumers are doing, but automotive seems to be one sector that's been a beneficiary of this trend as well. So um, that's ARB Group. Why, why do you specifically like it at this time? Yes, so one key theme, investment theme that we're targeting over the next six to 12 months is the higher propensity of consumers, domestic consumers, for in, you know, to travel interstate or intrastate. And we believe that ARB is right at the forefront of this in terms of um, over the next six months, we'll still potentially have border closures in Western Australia and potentially Queensland. So most of us are going to be desperate to go on a holiday over the next six months, given the year we've all had. Yep. Uh, and, and we'll want to do that. We'll have to be doing that you know, intrastate. And we think that you know things like camping, holidays, you know, driving up or down the coast and ARB really fits into that thematic. When, when we do our anecdotal um, channel checks and speaking to some of the ARB uh, stores that are located around Australia, a lot of them are booked out for three to four months in terms of what you want to get a new bull bar fitted. Um, those sort of lead times we haven't, they haven't seen ever. Um, in their annual report recently announced to the ASX, they talked about a record order book they're struggling to keep up with demand at the moment. So that for a fund for a fund manager, that's music to our ears in terms of struggling to keep up with demand. So we believe that they'll continue to ramp up um, you know, supply uh, over the next six months. Most of their product these days uh, is manufactured out of Thailand. They're running 24 hours a day, seven days a week at the moment to try and keep up. So we believe that there's a high probability in our view that um, based on those thematics continuing, there's a high probability of an earnings upgrade to come through from ARB over the next six to 12 months. And we think that the medium-term outlook looks really strong with the uncertainty around COVID-19 and our ability to travel uh, changing for the next few years. Yeah, okay. And as we said, uh, it's a story that's been around for a long time and it's got an outstanding track record. Um, the business has been growing its offshore or export business um, you know, quite well over the last few years. And, and in particular, I think they've done uh, some work with Ford in the, in the US. How do some of those perhaps slightly more racy um, elements of the story play out over the next, say, three to five years from your perspective? There's enormous opportunity uh, for the ARB in that US market. You talked about the Ford opportunity, uh, which is certainly presents potentially presents uh, quite a bit of upside from a medium term perspective. So uh, we think you know, ARB have been in that US market for well over a decade now. So it's not new to them. Um, they've gotten to know the market fairly well. Um, and, and as we talked about earlier, there's um, they're a market leader in terms of their products, and um, you know, there's a Competition has certainly weakened, I'd say, versus what it would have looked like 10 years ago. So there's certainly more medium to longer term, a, a, a further outlet of growth for ARB in that US market. And look, this uh, ticks a number of boxes in terms of the mid and small cap market in Australia and and a quality business across many of the attributes that you talked about previously. When it comes to valuation, um, I guess sometimes these quality businesses can trade um, and be priced at a, at a premium. How do you approach valuation for ARB at the moment? Yes, sure. So we um, our earnings forecasts sit well above what the market's expectations are. Uh, for FY21, based on some of those thematics and reasons that we've spoken about a little bit earlier on. Um, you know, we believe in this environment, the ARB should trade at a premium to what the market's multiples are. So we think it will hold that multiple 
uh, a premium multiple, sorry, uh, over the next few years as we continue to see, um, you know, the higher propensity for people to travel intrastate and the significant demand for their products. So, and, and generally, if you look back over the last 10 or 15 years, as you'd know, Nick, that, that ARB has generally traded at a nice premium to the market. And so we expect that um, gap will continue. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's uh, that's ARB Group. Um, last on the list, um, Chris is Capital Health. Now, not really a, a consumer uh, related business, um, and certainly not an online business, but um, one of your key picks. So um, I guess uh, tell us tell us a little bit about Capital Health, what it does, and, and why you like it. Capital Health is a radiology business primarily based out of Victoria. So Victoria represents around 75 to 80% of the company's revenue. So they you know, have a very much overweight that market as well as the WA market. So as you'd expect, um, they've had a really tricky uh, year over this calendar year in terms of uh, Victoria being in its second lockdown. But what we, from what we have seen uh, is the, the, the ability for this business to recover very, very rapidly. Um, coming out of lockdown. So we saw that coming out of the first lockdown in that June-July period in Victoria um, where the company saw a, a big return in terms of sales growth coming out of that, that lockdown period. So we think that when you look at Capital Health compared to its listed peers, in particular integrated uh, IDX, um, it trades at a significant discount to it. Um, Capital Health's got, got a much stronger balance sheet coming back to that earlier fact around net, having net cash they're not too far away from net cash, so they've also flagged to the ASX in that last announcement around the result that they're looking for uh, M&A opportunities to drive growth uh, from here. Uh, so we, we think that over the next three to five years, they've got the ability to double their EBITDA uh, for both from high, uh, high levels of organic growth as well as acquisitive um, growth, which will, which will come into the mix. So a relatively new management team, strong balance sheet, at a significant discount to the sector. We think that it's certainly well-positioned um, over the medium to longer term. Very, very good. Thank you very much. So um, let's sum up there. We've got some of the thoughts from Chris Stott from 1851 Capital. Um, he's positive on the medium term outlook for uh, consumer spending, dis- consumer discretionary spending in Australia, particularly that online um, spending element, which we know um, is going very well at the moment. Uh, we've got his views on the online specialists, Temple and Webster and Kogan, who have been two of the best performing stocks uh, on the ASX post uh, the COVID crisis or the depths of the COVID crisis. Um, Chris has been talking about one of the undiscovered but still high-performing online retailers, um, Shaver Shop, as well as one of the best long-term businesses in the consumer space, ARB, um, in Australia, as well as um, another top pick, Capital Health. Um, Stoddy, we mentioned it just at the start, but another opportunity to tell us about your uh, strong performance of the ADM51 uh, fund over the last few months. Sure. Thanks, Nick. So, um, as we said, we're only seven months into our journey. So, we, we launched the fund on the 1st of February uh, this year. We've been going for seven months. We've outperformed since inception by 7% um, after fees. So, we've, we've, been, uh, we've been pleased in particular over the last quarter to have really strong outperformance through that reporting season period. Um, our performance, according to the Morningstar survey, sits in the top quartile for over one, three and six months. Um, so, we, you know, we've been able to pleased with our uh, early days, but we've, you know, they've been pleased with our uh, performance to date, um, you know, 
for this newly found business. Obviously, we've got a track record going back well over a decade uh, previously at Wilson Asset Management, managing the money there. So pleasing to be able to get off to such a strong start through probably some of the toughest months that we've a lot of us have experienced in the investment markets. Um, but listen, that's about it for this edition of the uh, podcast. The easiest way to get more information on 1851 Capital um, and the 1851 Emerging Companies Fund is to speak to your financial advisor or you can go to uh, Chris's website at 1851capital.com.au. Thank you to our special guest, Chris Stott, Chief Investment Officer at 1851 Capital. Thanks, Thanks very much, Nick. Thanks Cheers. for having me. Make sure you're subscribed or follow this podcast to make sure you're kept up to date with our thoughts. We're available on all the main podcast platforms and apps. And lastly, don't forget to look at our webpage, bailu.com.au. Have a look at our videos, have a look at our research, all sorts of things. You can even request to speak to an advisor if you don't have one already. That's it for this episode. Uh, Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to The Value Podcast. The information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. You should not rely on general advice without making your own inquiries or your own assessments about the suitability of the financial products or services mentioned.